Welcome to the Growth Cap Podcast, where we chat with CEOs, investors, and other key industry leaders to uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. I've spoken to hundreds of private equity investors over the years, and after spending time with Nick, you can't help but come away feeling that he would make for a great capital partner. Nick Humphreys is the Senior Partner and Executive Chairman of HG and Head of the Saturn Fund. HG, the leading European private equity firm focused on software and services, has over $30 billion under management and is supported by an investment team of over 140 people, plus a portfolio team of more than 35 operators. The firm is based in London, Munich, and New York. Nick has led or co-led more than 30 investments over the last 27 years. He started his investing career in 1990 and has focused exclusively on technology and software since 1994. He joined HG in 2001 as founder of the firm's technology team. We hope you enjoy the show. So Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to chat with you. Maybe what we could do for the benefit of our audience is hear a little bit about your background as well as HG. Yeah, RJ, thank you very much for inviting me on. It's a pleasure. As I said, I've listened to your kind of podcast while I've been running over the last kind of few months in uh, in lockdown in, in Britain. So uh, it's a pleasure to kind of finally speak, uh, speak to you and meet you. And my background is uh, pretty much kind of private equity out of university, but even how that happened is slightly surprising. So uh, I grew up in a kind of small town in uh, Midlands in England, near Nottingham. I went to university as a techie and did kind of computer science and electronics and really didn't have a clue what I wanted to do out of the university. And so I cold called a bunch of people in professions that I didn't really know, of which one was investment banking. I went to meet an investment banker who basically said to me, you're way too scruffy to be an investment banker, but you should try this kind of venture capital private equity thing, which uh, in the late 80s in the UK was almost unheard of. And so um, I got into kind of private equity straight out of university, really via exactly that route, and I spent the last kind of 31 years, uh, which makes me feel old, in private equity, all of that in um, kind of mid-market, kind of growth-orientated. And I guess the last part of that story is that uh, in about 93, 94, I was probably three, four years into my career, I remember going home to my wife and saying, I'm probably going to get fired because I've figured out I don't really know what I'm doing. And at some point, my boss will probably figure that out as well. Rather than try and get fired immediately, I thought the best thing I could do is try and just really narrow down and kind of focus very, very tightly. So in the first three or four years of my career, I was a generalist investor across any sector and across any type of deal. And I focused down in 93, 94 to invest kind of exclusively in kind of software and tech services businesses that were kind of growing and um, developing their market share and kind of, you know, their revenues. So I've been investing exclusively in those kind of sectors for the last kind of 27 or so years. In that, uh, you know, this is fascinating because in that time frame, I mean, this is like pre-internet, pre-email, or maybe it's it's the advent of, of the internet. But when you think back to that time, deciding on whether or not to invest in software, I think is a much more difficult thing versus today. Today, we obviously, it's, it's well proven out how profitable software can be. What were some of the aspects to software at the time which made you believe it would be a big industry and, and a viable endeavor? I would love to tell you that I had kind of terrific kind of vision and I could see forward for the next kind of 10 or 15 years at that time. But of course, I couldn't. I had no clue, really. It really started for me with just 
wanting to kind of get into something that I was personally kind of passionate about, that I had, I guess, spent five or 10 years of my kind of life at that point from my, uh, my kind of early teens being interested in coding and those kind of things. And so really it was about following a kind of passion. I just had this belief, which I would probably still pass on as advice to anybody who's early in their career that, uh, you're much, much better to kind of try and pursue something that you really enjoy. If you enjoy something, there's usually a fairly good correlation with that being something that you're good at, hopefully over time. And those two things going to feed off each other. So it was pretty obvious that software was going to grow in some way. I had no idea that it could have eat the world as we've all found out kind of much later, but it was pretty obvious there'd be kind of some secular growth in the sector and that it was going to be able to kind of penetrate multiple types of end industry. But obviously, I would say back in 93, 94, you could see tentative kind of areas like networking taking off. But yeah, really, I didn't see the kind of internet and the boom that would come four or five years later in 98, 99. And I certainly didn't see the kind of, you know, 25, 30 years of secular growth and probably more than that going forward that we've had. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, thinking about kind of three decades later where you sit today, kind of at the helm of, you know, one of the largest investment firms, you know, focused on technology in Europe. How has kind of that, uh, I guess, twofold, the early being kind of experienced in those early days and kind of seeing how the the industry would evolve and coupled with your background, you know, in engineering, you know, how has that aided in kind of getting to this point where now you have I believe, if I have my facts correct, uh, you know, around thirty billion under management. Yeah, we've been very, very fortunate. So we, um, yeah, we have about thirty billion under management in our kind of portfolio. If you kind of aggregate them up and think about them as a single business, is around about kind of sixty billion dollars EV and growing at twenty eight percent. So um, it's a fairly sizable business. When I reflect back to um, investments of a kind of million dollars or two million dollars that I was making in the mid nineties. And we've clearly been very fortunate to ride off the back of that tremendous growth in the sector. So as they say, it's way better to be kind of lucky than, than smart. But, um, I would say the kind of main reflections for me would be, first of all, it's great early on in your career to be in a little niche that really very few people are focusing on. It allows you to make some mistakes and to learn from those mistakes without embarrassing yourself too much. So that was very fortunate in the nineties, but I learned a lot during that period of time. And I was fortunate enough to, meet a number of people that were incredibly kind to me. These were people who were executives stepping out of roles, you know, in strategic businesses that were looking for maybe a plural career where they were going to be kind of non-executives or chairman. And I got very fortunate to meet a couple of those people that um, really took me under their wing. And um, I guess the deal was, you know, I would work, uh, you know, 80, 90 hours a week as much as I needed to and run around doing all the work and they would kind of protect me from myself and make sure that I didn't make too many mistakes. So having a couple of really excellent industry executives that could guide me was very fortunate. They're still very good friends now, and we've done dozens of investments you know, between us over, over many years. I think having a kind of dot-com boom and bust about kind of five or six years into that kind of software investing career was, again, pretty fortunate. I, I saw many things. I probably kind of got slightly over my skis in kind of 98 and 99, believing that, you know, everybody could make money and then you have a kind of crash like kind of 2000. And it, uh, it teaches, I think, very carefully about kind of the robustness of kind of business models and businesses that can survive through recessions. And so 
I joined HG in kind of 2001, just after that kind of bust. And really, we started to embed a number of those lessons into our investment strategy. And so, you know, we tend to buy businesses that have kind of mission critical products or services that are very, very heavily subscription driven, have very high levels of intellectual property and kind of customers want them in good times or bad. So I think a lot of those things are now relatively well accepted in the kind of software investing industry, but they were a kind of core part of what we established as our, you know, to, to kind of quote Warren Buffett, our kind of circle of competence back in kind of 2001. And we've stuck very strictly to those kind of criteria ever since. So that's been very fortunate for us and our investors because it meant that our kind of portfolio of companies has grown every single quarter, every year through the GFC and through the kind of recent kind of COVID crisis. So um, those early lessons from maybe 20, 25 years ago have really been embedded into to our strategy from, you know, from day one. <laughs> it's fascinating. HG has such a, you know, a strong reputation here in this, obviously in Europe, but here in the States as well. It's been, I'd say, over the last several years that we've, at least I've started to hear more from colleagues in the private equity world about HG. My question now is related to kind of how you build that reputation. And you alluded it to kind of with what you just explained and establishing a, a circle of, of competency. But to those younger investors out there, and I have to talk to them frequently, those who are starting their own firms or those who have established their own firms, but they're still in their, call it early to mid 40s. You know, there's always the debate how do you grow? What's the appropriate way? to set up your firm? Do you have multiple kind of equal partners, multiple senior partners helping to collaborate in decision-making? Or do you try to stick with kind of like one lead partner or maybe just a couple? What do you think was most helpful in building kind of a solid foundation for HG? So, I mean, first of all, I kind of took over running the firm in kind of 2007, but I joined in 2001. And that meant there were some founder partners that were there at the start in kind of 2001. And really, they established the kind of culture of the firm and the values of the firm. And so I'm just very lucky that I inherited a firm that I think, you know, the values that were well established and in, in kind of almost like military parlance, it was just very, very clear. It was kind of client firm, team me, and that kind of order. And when you have that kind of talk to you and drill into you and, and you live that, I think that's just hugely helpful for everybody to remember. I think the second thing was a really, really genuinely belief that we're backing kind of entrepreneurs and management teams. And in a lot of ways, our job is to find teams that are kind of smarter and better than we are, and then to kind of back them and to support them. And thankfully, it's extremely easy to find people that are smarter and better than, so that's been an easy part of the job. The third was, to answer your question specifically, belief that you know, coming out of the 90s, you had a lot of firms, as you described, where it was really kind of one person or maybe two people, and they did everything. They were the lead deal doers. They were the chairs of the investment committee. They were the best portfolio managers. They were the best fundraisers. They were the best CFO. They were probably the best people at cleaning the dishes in the kitchen as well. And most businesses that are real businesses of scale are just not like that. You have people who are good at kind of origination that are generally called salespeople. You have people that are good at portfolio management. You have people that are good at different tasks. And so, again, I was fortunate that the kind of fans of our business believe that from day one. And they built a firm where all of those roles, whether it's kind of portfolio operations, 
or whether it's kind of clients, fundraising, client services, or back office, partners in each of those areas were viewed as equal. And so everybody had the same opportunity, both for career development and also for kind of compensation and those kind of things. So there's never been a kind of deal guys of the kind of, you know, Premier League and everybody else is in the second league in the way we run the firm. Of course, it's a meritocracy and, and those that actually generate better returns for clients have the opportunity to do better. But ultimately, there's a belief that everybody starts equal and everybody has an equal opportunity, whatever team or division they sit in. And that for us has been hugely beneficial. Uh, we believe it's kind of how most good businesses run as well. But of course, it's not for everybody. There's lots of different business models in private equity and lots of different models work. I'm a huge believer that what works for us wouldn't work for somebody else. It just happens to be our style and our values. And for us, it works well. And and uh, in order to kind of, you know, grow the way your firm has, you know, sequentially over over time, you know, you're obviously making good investments and uh, you know technology well and, and you must be thinking ahead of what will be the technology of the future, which which segments will grow maybe more profoundly. What are you most interested in now? What kind of excites you about the kind of broad technology sector? I mean, that's a huge answer because there's so many kind of exciting trends going on. It's one of the huge benefits to having been in the sector for the last kind of 30 years is that every year, every quarter, you get an opportunity to see you know, an entrepreneur with a new product that is doing exciting things for the kind of customer base. So I could literally list kind of dozens of them. The, the obvious ones are the way that things like kind of AI, kind of machine learning, kind of big data are providing, I think, kind of quite profound opportunities for customers and consumers to just get huge benefits out of what would have been very, very kind of mundane tasks before. So whether that's in a B2B business, the opportunity to use kind of machine learning algorithms to basically provide customer service and answer those incredibly kind of dull and repetitive questions like, you know, have you switched on the monitor or, you know, have you connected to power lead or those kind of things? Do you remember your password? Those are not really exciting things for a kind of customer service rep to be able to do every day. And it frees up their time to be able to actually focus on solving more complex kind of customer problems or whether it's in the kind of healthcare industry, you know, to be able to run AI algorithms that basically allow us to kind of schedule nurses and their kind of home visits in a more productive way. One of our companies, Visma, another one called Allocate, do these kind of things. And, you know, they're able to frankly just provide way more productivity. And the end point of that productivity is hopefully that, you know, more people have less illness or get their illness kind of cured earlier. So, I think these have kind of really profound benefits for society if we um, if we use the technologies right. And um, HG now is across, you know, investing across multiple countries. In recently opened an office in the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit about what you view are the differences when kind of approaching the U.S. market versus the European market, and then beyond that you know, maybe some of the segments or different countries with, within Europe, if, if there is a difference in terms of kind of how the software market is playing out? Yeah. Um, so I would say US versus Europe as a very kind of broad generalization, you know, has always been ahead in most areas, not all areas, but most areas of kind of technology. And I think we still see 
by and large, you know, some of the kind of biggest developments, the most exciting developments kind of coming out of the US. I think there's lots of reasons for that kind of visa ecosystem, early capital, frankly, having kind of 300 plus million people that broadly speak the same language and that can be sold to in the same way has an inherent scale advantage. So we think the vibrancy of the US and just the US kind of entrepreneurial culture is something that even we as Europeans find extremely kind of exciting, stimulating. It's great to be investing here. We've, we've been investing here for kind of seven or eight years on a flyover basis, but it was terrific to kind of build a team here two, three years ago. And that team is now scaling, is, is going to t- continue to scale. So just frankly, the vibrancy and the size and scale of the kind of US market, it means that businesses that would be in tiny niches in a European country are actually in pretty big kind of markets with pretty big TAMs in the US. And so you can just get down into kind of some incredibly kind of granular sub-segments of sub-segments and still find some exciting businesses to back. So we love that. And our, our team over here loves that. Europe is uh, you know, a collection of many different countries. And again, I'm going to paint a slightly kind of black and white picture, which is not uh, at all true. It's, I'll, I'll be generalizing in a way that is not obviously true uh, of all countries. But if I try to generalize a little, I would say you get that same technical kind of vibrancy mostly kind of coming out of the Nordic region historically. So kind of Norway, Finland, kind of Denmark and Sweden. And then I think there are some inherent reasons for that. They're relatively small local economies. And so businesses from there need to kind of cross geographic boundaries and often think about the US very early on. They're technically extremely kind of competent geographies where people have very high educational uh, kind of backgrounds and also where things like kind of mobile penetration, broadband penetration have always been very high. So you've got a lot of the kind of infrastructure there to develop very good kind of tech businesses at both the venture stage and the later stage kind of growth buyout area as well. And then recently you've got kind of hubs in many other countries, but particularly I guess you'd call out kind of, you know, Berlin and, and other areas in Germany, London, Cambridge, etc., which are kind of popping up in, in, in other geographies and are very vibrant. So I think there's a, a real spread of that kind of entrepreneur will in, in Europe that perhaps wasn't there kind of 10 or 20 years ago. And I think it's really great to see kind of, you know, in the UK, for example, there's really positive kind of government stimulation of that kind of tech environment and entrepreneurial kind of spirit now, again, in a way that maybe wasn't there kind of 10 or 15 years ago. And, um, you know, as we come up on time here, I typically like to ask guests a couple final questions. I mean, this will delve a little bit more into uh, you personally. But one question is, can you tell us about a challenging time you faced thinking about context here in the business of, of private equity, which is a very challenging business, but as challenging, I think, as, as any other businesses to, to build? You know, that may not be kind of the, the experience you choose, but can you tell us about a, you know, a challenging time, you know, in your career and, and how you were able to, to deal with it and, and, and come out the other side? Let me, let me pick a kind of a little known fact, which is, you know, I joined kind of HG in 2001 and my first investment in 2001 was a small investment, kind of a teens million dollar investment in a growth company that was in the telecom software industry. It was providing what's called provisioning software. And it came off the back of, you know, frankly, two other investments I'd made in that sector that had been very successful. And so, frankly, I probably had a little bit of hubris and I kind of really thought I knew what I was doing. 
And I really wish I'd kept the original investment memo for this deal because in it, I distinctly remember building a table that had their kind of pipeline that they were going to win over the next kind of like six months or so. And if you remember the kind of dot-com boom and bust, it was actually about a year before the telecoms kind of meltdown. It kind of preceded the telecoms meltdown. This table of kind of business that uh, that my business was going to go win is like a kind of who's who of telecoms businesses that then went bust over the following kind of six months. And so I'm pretty sure we missed our year one forecast by about 50% or more. So I'm less than a year into my job. I've made my first investment and I'm off plan by about 50%, which I think was probably something of a record within HG at the time. A long story short, we managed to kind of help the business survive. We put a little more capital in. Thankfully, all the employees kept their jobs. We didn't make really any uh, great return on that over the following kind of three or four years. But we did manage to find a great home for, for the business, which ultimately was within Cisco. So number one, I guess, was even if you can't make a great return, let's make sure that the customers and the employees and everybody else you know, get, get to, to be okay. That was one lesson. The second was really, what am I going to do? Because that wasn't a really successful uh, kind of start to my career. A, it was great that my uh, partners supported me during that period. And I really had to kind of go away and think about whether that type of kind of early growth investing, which I've been doing up to kind of 90,000, was going to be where capital could successfully be invested over the following two or three years. And I guess the lesson was really take your time, be very calm, go and properly kind of think and analyze about what's changed. And the world had changed because customers were now in problems, whereas customers had been in a very vibrant state two years previously. And that's when I really kind of pivoted from more growth, venture growth investing to kind of software buyout investing, because I could just see that that would be a place where there'd be relatively little capital in software in the early noughties. And frankly, existing businesses would need some kind of growth advice. And so I kind of pivoted my kind of career around to that market at that time, which um, you know, turned out to be kind of quite a fortunate pivot, I think. And uh, final question, is there someone who you've worked with or, or that you've known in some you know, form or fashion that you think about and, and that person helps kind of guide the way you make decisions? They could either be kind of this the ideal kind of model you have in in the perfect kind of business executive or simply someone who you think very highly of and you've admired for for a long time you know has helped influence the way you the way you work and interact with people oh, that's a great question again and and the answer is there's like dozens and dozens of people that I've been very very fortunate to be coached by and have kind of helped me in in lots of different ways I think the most natural answer is is going to be that it's it's got to be some of the chief executives and and some of the kind of management team I've been fortunate to work with in some of our investee companies who are they're the entrepreneurs they're the people that actually make the returns for our investors they're the people that teaches what good looks like and how we can kind of replicate that maybe in a future investment if it was to be a shout out to a group it would be to the, that group of people and probably specifically to a, a guy called Oystan Moen, who is the uh, now chairman, but was the chief executive of a business that we back called Visma back in uh, 2005, 2006. And we've been fortunate to be an investor in Visma, a majority investor for the last kind of 16 or so years as the business has grown from a couple of hundred million dollars sales to over 2 billion and from 
four five hundred million value to somewhere in the kind of mid teens billion value today. So um, the amount of things that he's taught me is probably uh, we we could go on for another twenty five thirty minutes at least. But uh, he's been a great uh, great friend and a, an amazing kind of uh, colleague to work with. Excellent. Well, Nick. We know your your time is scarce, so we, we very much appreciate you spending a little bit with us today. I know our audience will find this conversation very insightful, so thank you. No, at all. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, it's, a, it's a great podcast, so really appreciate being on it. Thanks, Nick. Take care.